You're listening to an ACA podcast.
to be an in-residence with the Experimental Television Centre in New York, Bundanon Trust, Foray Beijing Studio, Gertrude Contemporary, and she co-founded Channels Festival. Lim is the outgoing co-director of APEDS and is a PhD candidate at BCA. Now to introduce Sher Tan. Sher is a freelance essayist, editor, and critic. In between writing and editing, she works as a private domestic cleaner previously has worked as an Uber Eats delivery writer. Her writing has appeared in the Sydney Review of Books, Kill Your Darlings, Run Major, and Overland, amongst others. She's an editor at Limnor and the reviews editor at Minjin. I, our third speaker for today, is a 25-year-old student at the University of Melbourne. Wasai has worked in the gig economy for over four years and is currently working as an Uber driver to raise awareness about workers' rights in the gig economy. Vasai has collaborated with Junior Lim on her 2019 work on demand, which we'll all talk about in our conversation today. So, thank you, and thanks everyone for being here for this conversation. Um, to kick us off, Eugenia, I was hoping you could introduce us to the research behind Destiny. Uh, it's a two-year-plus research project. Um, but if, yeah, if you tell us a little bit about the research and maybe touch on On Demand as well, the earlier work. Yeah, it's been a long time coming. I think uh, the research behind this project, I think a lot of the work that I often do is in dialogue with work that's gone before. Yeah, the work of um, the US artist Mel Litterman Eucalys, who's been working with the New York Sanitation Department for 40 years, working with um, what she calls maintenance art, I guess I was thinking about how um, working in the contemporary era now, where work has become so much more atomized, um, often, you know, either as an artist or a service worker, you don't enjoy the same kind of social safety net as perhaps the workers that Merle worked with, um, you know, over 40 years ago. So I think um, I was thinking about, I guess, what, what does work mean today? And often that is about um, this kind of competitive dog-eat-dog sort of social Darwinist approach to working um, and that happens you know almost within the arts as well as um, yeah just the way that work is sort of structured around this 24-7 cycle um, and at the same time the last few years when UberX came to Australia and I guess just witnessing how um, everything was being kind of revolutionized in terms of like the way that we move through our cities, how we order food, how we consume, this idea of convenience and sort of having something delivered to you without, um, in this kind of like frictionless way, actually uh, required this whole infrastructure of labour and people to get it to you. So I think starting to reflect on that and starting to think about also the quite like racialized dimension of the people that were working um, to kind of, you know, get you your burger um, on time or to deliver your Amazon Prime, you know, the next day, started to think about perhaps um, this was something that, you know, could work with um, through the project and that's where On Demand um, came to be in 2019 and I reached out to, well, Sharon um, Rasai answered the call to make a, I guess, a kind of choreographic video work together, um, which sort of, yeah, it was a chance to speak about their experiences of work and also make a work together as well. Um, I like that you touched on Mel Lederman-Eucalys, who's an art hero for many, but 
um, but in our previous conversations, have also reflected on the differences between the kind of work that she was doing and the workers she was working with, sanitation workers in New York City, that were unionised and centralised. And in this project, a big part of your research and a big part of the project itself is looking at how on-demand workers or gig workers don't have a union, don't have any centralised meeting space, um, are completely, in some ways, um, separate and uh, working as independent contractors, so there's not a sense of solidarity between them. Um, I wonder if you could talk about unravelling some of those layers in your research. Yeah, and I'd love to hear, I think, from um, Sharon Musai about this. I, I think often in our conversations, and we've been working together two plus years now, there was this layer of um, the gamification of work and how, you know, when you're working for an unknown boss through Uber or Deliveroo, um, there's so many kind of incentives to keep going and to sort of keep working around the clock. Always have your phone on, even when you're, you know, on a kind of rest day, um, just to sort of, yeah... That, that sense of like you could always be earning even when you're in your downtime. So I think that's something that we spoke a lot about and something I think, to be honest, um, I've been feeling anyway, you know, just in terms of the rise of um, spending our time online and social media and sort of that, that endless cycle that's always there. But I'd love to hear, I mean, we've, we've spoken about these things in the rehearsal room, but maybe your experiences. Share? Yeah, I mean... Yeah, there's a lot of gamification going on. I mean, obviously it's the, it's the boss, you know, when you play a video game and you reach the last level, the, you meet the boss. <laughs> In the gig economy, the boss is life. So, so um, it's always about, you know, trying to get the best rating, trying to get the, um, you know, the best outcome possible. It's always rushing to the next job, rushing to the next quest. platforms, you know, have really capitalised on it, um, which, yeah, engenders this way of working that makes you feel like you always have to keep going, you can't stop, you have to just keep going, otherwise, you know, you're fucked, you're, you're surviving on, on, on all these um, little within a certain time period you can you can spend an extra 120 bucks for instance and then that that's always in the back of my mind and I'm I'm thinking I've worked for this long if I put, keep on pushing for a little bit longer I can I can make 
to fulfill that quest and make that extra money. And so it never ends. It's like a monotonous loop. And once you get caught up in it, it's like you, 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 you like sort of feel loss of time. And you so, there's no, the, the automation sort of takes you in a way where you're just trying to make ends meet and within that moment you're just working for without a purpose, without a cause, for just making that extra money. You're, you're out there without a sense of purpose, for that matter. Yeah, the game of sorry. I think, um, I think DoorDash in the United States did it quite literally. Like they had this prize for um, people who could do a certain amount of deliveries at a certain time and you get this, you know, extra bonus sort of thing. So it, it becomes this literal winner-takes-all sort of idea that is very prevalent in um, both the arts world and the gig economy. Yeah. And sure, that was a question I wanted um, to ask you to expand on. As someone who straddles both worlds, you know, you're, you're an arts writer, you're also a worker in the gig economy, um, and a lot of the work that APITS has been doing behind this has been examining the parallels and the differences between those positions. Like you have a front seat to that experience. Could you speak of that? Yeah, I was saying before to, to someone else when we were talking casually that it was a, quite an emotional challenge for me because to, to bring those two worlds together was um, quite interesting. Um, they normally don't collide, as maybe you would figure. <laughs> uh, but they have lots of similarities in that, you know, unionisation is um, quite rare. It's not something that's encouraged. I think the differences um, between those two kinds of work is, um, you know, like if you tell people you're an artist, you know, there's a lot more social capital, you know, people are like, whoa, you know, you're an artist, wow, you know, it doesn't matter how much money you make, it has this glamour um, attached to it, whereas if you tell someone, you know, like for me, if I tell someone I'm cleaning houses, they'll be like, oh, okay. Gets me uncomfortable. So even though there are those equivalencies, we have to recognise that there are differences in in um, how they're perceived. Uh, even though, um, yeah, even though the conditions can be quite precarious in both jobs. And engineer, I know that was something you thought a lot about um, in this project and with your agents how to sort of embed the position of the artist but also acknowledge the social capital, the privilege that's tied up in that while also giving space um, you know, to, to think about the precarity of both kinds of work. And I was hoping you could speak a bit about the conditions that you set out to make this kind of collaboration possible between um, artists and non-artists, gig workers and non-gig workers. Thanks, Amelia. Um, yeah, it was a long time in the making because I guess the work required um, a lot of support structures around it and I think 
um, you know, within AFIDS, um, Michelle and I, we spent a lot of time trying to hustle all the funds and support structures and partnerships with the venue, Trades Hall and with Rising, um, to actually be able to put the money where our um, mouth was and, and make sure that the working conditions in terms of fair remuneration for both artists and workers, um, being able to pay above minimum award wage for performing arts um, for each person that was working with there. Um, that was sort of, that was a kind of, um, you know, we, we just couldn't compromise on that. And that's why it took about three years to kind of get to this point. Um, we were always going to make a performance, um, which we sort of got to do, and then the film as well. So I think um, when the economic structure um, was there, which was, you know, really hard to do because, you know, the arts is not, not usually funded either. Um, but I think making sure that those um, financial structures and all of the partnerships, I think this is a project that's born of so many relationships and the kind of relational aspect of it um, was part of that, making sure the conditions are right, time to kind of build trust and get to know the workers and find um, people out there who were willing to kind of step into this contemporary art as well. Um, so I think once once that was in place then it felt like we could begin. And then in terms of the actual, you know, working methodology, that was also a negotiation. You know, we had um, this incredible group of artistic collaborators and workers and trying to find a space where, um, you know, we felt that we could come to that with our different experiences, you know, meet on different levels learn from each other, um, you know, for us artists learning about the actual reality of gig work and what it means, you know, when you order Uber and, you know, the actual people and bodies behind that. Um, and welcoming in, you know, uh, people outside the arts into the artistic realm and the strangeness of collaboration and, you know, doing weird things, singing karaoke to break the ice and, um, you know, working with Amrita to do dance moves and choreography. It, a lot of, it, there were aspects that were new for all of us, but in different ways, I think. And maybe that was part of the, um, yeah, the kind of um, importance of the exchange was that there were things that we knew, but there was a lot that we didn't know and kind of entering into that together was really important. Yeah, the levels of collaboration are quite remarkable behind this work because there's the collaboration of aphids um, itself that's really multifaceted and cross-disciplinary and then there's a collaboration in the rehearsal room that you speak of and all the other additional people like Amrita Heppy um, who, who was brought into choreography. Um, but Vasai, I was wondering if I could ask you to speak a little bit about your experience of the collaboration process and firstly um, how you first got involved and then how you found being in the rehearsal room together? Sure. So I was uh, part of um, Young Work at Punitive Center, and I was trying, at the time I used to be in Kuwait's delivery driver, and the pay wages and the way things um, were, the conditions for work, they, they were very, very difficult for workers. So I, I tried to raise my voice as much as I can. Um, with the union members and I used to go to different protests. Um, but very soon I got a sense that this isn't getting the right the message in the right way to the people. And from them I got I got in touch with Eugenia and 
she she said that um, there's an art project that uh, we would like you to collaborate with, and I was like, this could be actually the right way of getting the message out to a bigger audience in 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 a in a better way. So I was I was like, this is for my cause, and I would love to be a part of it. And since me joining Eugenia and then Efforts. It's been a very, very delightful journey for me because that sense of belonging which we don't get in work, I was, I felt that working with, the, with these incredible artists and just the inclusive environment that, that, that was promoted um, with the, throughout the crew members, that was, that, that was very, very good. Um, a lot of the times when, when I'm working out there, um, I don't feel like I have any colleagues or people I can trust or I, people I can share my experiences with. But uh, working with these artists, they were like friends to me, and I, I felt like I was there wasn't a hierarchy difference. So that was very cool for me. Amazing. Thank you for sharing that, and that makes me reflect on another difference um, between you know, the art world um, and the on-demand experience of work is the, the community around that. You know, even if the art world's not unionised, it has a very strong community aspect and it sounds like that was lacking um, in your experience of work. But is there a message, you know, what would be the, the message you would want to share from your experiences of work? Well, I think a lot of the times people forget that there's a human being delivering that service. So me as an Uber driver, at times I, I get a feeling that they, they're not recognizing my pre even my presence. So for instance, if, if somebody gets in my car and I, I say my regards and like, hello, how are you? They won't even acknowledge that. So that gives you a sense of, that doesn't feel very good. So I'm always trying to I'm, my message would be that people should, um, the customers, consumers should know that there's a human being delivering that message and that service behind, and they matter as well. Thank you. And what about you, Cher? Is there anything you would want to add to that? Um, yeah, I mean, I've been nodding a lot with, you know, what I say and all that stuff. Um, yeah, I guess there's the idea of both photonation it's um it's a it's a term that i think um this writer in the u.s called astra taylor coined um where you know it's not that the work has disappeared it's that the work has changed um and and we often get invisibilized because it's so convenient you know you just tap on your screen you know car shows up or, you know, something shows up at your door, or, you know, I rock up at someone's house. Often, you know, they're not even there. They've given me their keys, or, you know, they're there, and then they're like, okay, I'm going to work, see you later. Um, it becomes this, like, nearly magical thing for them. Like, we appear and then we disappear. <laughs> um, yeah, so, so the human element that happens... Along, alongside the platforms that we work for, not employers' platforms, um, yeah, tend to visualise the process. And there's a part of the film that really seems to hone in on that moment, and I'm thinking of um, the kind of climax of Destiny, when there's 
the scene in the car park um, and the, the yelling, the repetition and kind of these absurd asks that are being demanded. Um, this is open to anyone who'd like to speak to that moment, maybe where the material came from and the process of making that kind of crescendo happen. Um, maybe I can talk about the writing and the text. It was hugely collaborative. So Mish, Lara and I spent a long time kind of, um, you know, the work's been so many guises, it's been a dance piece without words. It's been like, you know, so many different kind of um, forms, but I think it really coalesced into this interesting, um, you know, strange text where we were writing and kind of speaking, you know, trying to compare what our work days were amongst the artist group and also the workers, what that looked like. And then, you know, the lived experience that people had kind of, you know, encountered some of their worst experiences on the job, some of their better ones. So that became material to kind of work with. And at the same time, we spent a lot of time scouring, um, you know, Uber driver forums on Facebook and Reddit threads. And, um, you know, these were kind of global experiences of work and the kind of absurd text that's in that protest scene. Um, it's not that far from, you know, a kind of customer request that we found on, I think, Uber Eats. Um, there's some real, I don't know, just this, I think what both Cher and Masai have touched on, this real disconnect between what is okay to ask someone to do because, you know, they're, you're paying them. Um, but the fact that, yeah, there is a real human being behind this sort of $3 delivery service and, um, you know, often the labour that goes into that is highly exploited because, yeah, it's sort of expected that it's done. But I think, um, yeah, finding all of those interesting threads between the very local experience here in Melbourne and, and what happens with the gig economy here and then what is happening globally as a real kind of... Um, yeah, widespread condition was something that we really strive for in the piece. And are you finding differences between mm, local experiences and global experiences of gig work? Or do you feel like there's... Yeah, is it, is it kind of a global experience, do you think, or is it localised? I think so. I mean, based on my research, I mean... Um, just, you know, being interested as someone who is in that economy and also somewhat outside of it. Um, I was just read you know, I'm, I was just reading a lot about what was happening elsewhere, whether in India, China, whether in the US, in, in, in Britain, etc, etc. And so many of these conditions are the same. And these platforms... They, they have this aim to sort of, I guess, gentrify the landscape in a sense that, you know, globalisation, therefore, everything becomes sort of the same. Um, and, yeah, all these complaints and, and frustrations, I guess, with, with being in the economy um, is mirrored throughout. And there's been, you know, all these different revolts and strikes and things like that. I don't know if you've read anything, you know, regarded, um, you know, in, in relation to that. And there's been more of a push, I guess, in recent, you know, two, three years where people are actually going on strike or making it known that these conditions are bad. 
but um, yeah, it's, it's more or less the same everywhere. I think too that um, maybe the, the localised element for us was being able to film and work out of Trades Hall, which is, you know, a building with a significant history. It was the first um, union building in the Southern Hemisphere, so it has this incredible kind of, like, rich, um, you know, fight for fair work and for the eight-hour day. And I think the interesting tension for us, um, which really came into the work, was bringing, you know, precarious on-demand workers who perhaps have never had the, enjoyed the sort of privileges of safe, secure work and the eight-hour day. Um, and as artists too, oftentimes, you know, that, that's not really a reality for us either. Bringing that dimension into um, working in Trades Hall and trying to explore this very globalised condition was, um, yeah, kind of quite a unique Workday, but what um, Destiny makes clear is that it's not eight hours for everyone, and the five-day work week is a privilege, and it's not available to everyone. Um, let's talk a little bit about how Destiny came to be and its previous life as Easy Riders. Do you want to talk about that? Um, yeah. So Destiny. Um, was always going to be the film component, the film adaptation of a performance work called Easy Riders. For those of you probably maybe aware, um, there's been so many lockdowns here in Victoria and the performance work and the festival that was commissioned to be part of Rising um, took many knocks and so, um, yeah, it was a really tumultuous time in the lead up to making the film but we always knew that in the lead up to doing the performance which was going to be an eight hour durational performance that the audience could come into Trades Hall and witness a kind of you know cyclical shift um, and you would have seen you know Sharon Wasai and the workers and the artists of AFIDS and our collaborators as well working and performing labour over that eight hour day. Um, that was kind of always going to happen and we did do a, a sort of smaller showing of that work in August between lockdowns um, but we were lucky enough to film this work over two days in May before everything went to shit and um, I think yeah because often I work between mediums and AFIDS is hugely interdisciplinary as well it made sense to try and think about how to give form to these very big ideas and often very kind of invisible ideas like Cher said, like it's such a kind of complex web around um, that, yeah, I think the film version was something that we were all gunning for and yeah, in May over these very intense days we filmed at Trades Hall and we also filmed in a beautiful car park, um, yeah, not dissimilar to this one but out in Maribyrnong. Um, and that idea of location and site and sort of taking the work into the streets was something that was really critical because actually originally the work was going to be in public space. It was going to be at the QV um, sort of weird outdoor area in the city and due to, you know, 
COVID times, many different um, parameters, we ended up taking work indoors to Trades Hall. But for me, you know, it was really important, and I think um, for all the crew, that there was this connection to the streets and to the, the spaces and, and sites where workers work, because, um, you know, talking to a sign share and all the workers, I mean, your body is sort of your office, like you're kind of out there on the streets working. So it made sense that, you know, in the film we could travel to those locations and, and kind of um, the car park space in the film is almost like this dream space. It's sort of the space where there is some sense of solidarity and kind of coming together. That was something that we talked a lot about, trying to find each other, um, you know, out there when the app or the digital interface tries to keep you separate. Yeah, and we should also say that a version of it's currently showing an ACA in the group in a group show as well. Um, but that importance of public space is so central to the work, and it would be entirely different staged as a performance in a public space versus Trades Hall. But for all the reasons we've spoken about, Trades Hall is quite an interesting, you know, metaphorical backdrop, and it even comes across in the video itself just how. Um, out of touch, it seems, with the current reality. You know, the, the costuming and the set really contrast to make that apparent to me. Um, I wanted to ask as well to hear a little bit about, um, you know, we've touched on the collaboration and we've touched on the, the process, um, but I'd like to draw out a little bit more the creative process and how you ended up with such a multivocal uh, film. Hey, it's representing multiple people's voices. But I wonder if Shio or Masai, you could paint a picture for the audience um, of the rehearsal room and some of the, the different tasks or the different uh, exercises that you did to help generate the material. <laughs> yep, so every time we'd um, start our shooting, I'd say, um, it would be either with karaoke or we, we do dance movement classes with Amrita. So they used to get us all um, ready and eased up into filming itself because some of the filming elements were very intense. So, yeah, dance, I would say, was the main thing. Um, I think that was throughout, throughout, our, um, throughout the journey. We, we started our days with dance classes and everyone trying to mimic each other. Um, one person would do a move and then the other person would have to uh, pick up from wherever they left and then pass it on to the next one. So that was a pretty cool thing. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was very inclusive. Like, I think at first when I went in, I had my, you know, shins because, you know, I have my own um, reservations about the art world, let's just say. <laughs> but um, it, it, Eugenie and Aethers just took it out of the subject-object dynamic that is very prevalent in the art world, where it's just like, I'm looking into this world and there's no voice of the people that are being portrayed. But then we were often asked for input. There was always check-ins every step of the way. You know, whenever there was a new development, people would be asking us, you know, like, are you okay with this? Or how do you feel? Um, and and every time, you know, even even if I wasn't comfortable with something, for example, people were like, okay, fine, that's fine. We'll just try and do something else. Um, and 
that was really rewarding, um, and it really felt like our voices were heard, I guess, like, um, like, like, Athens and Eugenie actually gave a shit, you know, about what was happening, and, um, uh, it wasn't just them trying to, you know, um, you know, exploit us in that sense, you know, how sometimes, you know, that subject-object dynamic that I was talking about, a lot of institutions can often, um, uh, capitalise on that, let's just say, and, um, in order to look like they care about, you know, the non-arts world, but, yeah, this was really, this was really great. I was pleasantly surprised. <laughs> <laughs> Do you want to add anything to that? Um, I think, yeah, I don't know, there's a quote by the filmmaker Trinity Minha that I really like. I think it's from one of her works, and, um, she says that she doesn't want to speak for, but just speak nearby. And I think that um, that kind of methodology was really important, that, um, yeah, it was never going to be a work that is trying to represent an experience or trying to speak for. It was so critical that it was a work that was made in collaboration with, you know, workers who have this experience and trying to figure out how, as artists, we might be able to kind of enter into that conversation, um, not assume that we know what it's like, um, but also, I think, through the performance, try to complicate that relationship a little bit. I mean, it's it's a layer of the, you know, that we couldn't quite explore with the film because of its different kind of medium, but in the performance, um, the artists kind of, yeah, like I said before, perform the labour, so it isn't sort of expecting that we outsource the work onto the workers and kind of make them work for money, but also kind of undertaking the same tasks as well. Yeah, I think it was very clear that we were all workers during the show, and that was good, you know, how was I was saying there was no hierarchy, even though, you know, there were lead, lead artists and stuff, obviously, but... It wasn't a hierarchy in the sense that we were told what to do. It was more like, are you okay with this? Do you want to do this? Yeah, it, was, it worked. That's great to hear. And so from two plus years of research and collaboration and all that time on the rehearsal room floor, um, what reflections or thoughts come to mind when you watch Destiny Now? I'm very glad that uh, we can finally put something together and show the world. Um, I'm always trying to raise my voice and tell people um, about this cause, and I'm very delighted that uh, our message is being heard. Um, workers are, are, are work can be shown to people, and. Um, just the cause that I'm not just a worker out there, I, I'm a human being, that human element is being um, emphasized upon, that gives me a lot of uh, a warming heart. Um, yeah, I mean, I watched it for the first time this afternoon, um, and I thought it really encapsulated our, you know, the monotonous workday and the dystopian aspect of 
all this work that we do as part of the economy. It's very routine and mundane. But then having it shown in a work like that um, allows it to be visible in the sense that we are working, you know, we're not just some no name, no face person that's part of a platform. So, yeah, that was um, quite heartening. research I think you know who would have known there'd be a global pandemic and we'd be like in and out of lockdowns and actually the nature of gig work and on-demand work would be at the forefront of kind of you know keeping cities running and open for those of us who are lucky enough to work from home and kind of shelter at home that there would be this like essentially essential workers out there keeping us going. I don't think I could have predicted that that was going to happen, I think, when we first started. So for me, that's a really interesting layer that's, um, yeah, kind of come through. I think the fact that we managed to make this through that time still, you know, boggles my mind. Um, and I think picking up on what, yeah, both Sharon was saying, I think that the sense of time and duration very slow, we've got this kind of very um, surveillance kind of bird's eye perspective on the city, but then we build to this crescendo of the kind of rapid pace, you know, um, protest scene, and I think that sense of um, time and, you know, between waiting and then very kind of risky, fast-paced work is something that I'm, I feel, you know, we were able to kind of capture in, in the video work, which I feel still yeah, makes me think of, of this kind of work. So much waiting and then so much that you have to do in a short space of time. Yeah, I thought, I thought it was um, ironically fortunate that we were doing it during a global <laughs> pandemic because it made the work even more urgent. <laughs> it made us really think more about how things, you know, all the cogs are still moving even though many people were sequestered in their homes. Um, yeah, the fact that, you know, Wasai and me, you know, we were still working, we were still having to go out and things like that. Um, yeah, it really added a certain new element, I think, to the work. Yeah, a certain new treatment, I would hope, but yeah, re reclassing workers as essential workers and hopefully refiguring that in people's minds as well, the human aspect behind it. I feel like we could keep talking, but I want to open it up to questions from the audience. Um, we have one here, and I will bring you my microphone. Now, thanks for that very interesting um, discussion. I've just got a very simple question, which is about the title of the work. Um, so, I kind of get the the, the cultural reference of easy writers, and I was just wondering about the choice of destiny as the title for the film. Thanks, Catherine. That was a writing room situation, I think. Um, I think Mish was maybe riffing on a customer request we found on Uber Eats, and 
um, it was actually about donuts or some food being delivered to a particular song, in this case, Toto's Africa, where we changed that in the film. And um, yeah, I think that idea of the absurdity of the request and actually, um, yeah, from the real request, there was this sense that the customer wanted to involve the delivery rider in this sense of like romantic destiny or some kind of um, quite intimate request. And I think we felt that that idea of expecting a kind of unknown underpaid worker to do your kind of romantic duties or, yeah, kind of that level of intimacy um, was sort of insane. And so the idea of destiny is a kind of double-edged sword, something that is your fate but also, um, yeah, impossible as well. We liked, I think we like loaded meanings in titles, so that's where it came from. More questions? Um, Wasai, I promised that I would ask you the question about the foot spas, so can you tell us a little bit more about your experience <laughs> with the foot spas? Um, yeah, they, they were pretty um, difficult to handle, especially the giant one. Um, they're all symbolizing as, as, as a certain thing behind it, um, but working with these different like the, the absurdity of our work is portrayed in the, in the video itself by, by these, these um, different props that don't really make sense at, at times. to talk about experiences and realise that, you know, this is not 
this is not something that it's just us, like, you know, like, feeling when you feel like a bad situation has happened and you're not able to seek any recourse. Like, if you try and complain to the platform, it's often a geek worker behind the, the you know, the interface as well, and they don't necessarily address it. And being able to talk about it openly and um, share our experiences was, um, was quite good. It felt like, you know, I'm not crazy, but <laughs> like having certain things or feelings happen. Um, I'd say the element of empowerment um, is really um, heightened for me. Now I speak about um, my experiences um, as an Uber driver more to people, um, not just to my friends, just to random people I come across. So I feel I feel like um, the voice inside me is growing a little bit more. amazing, amazing panel, thank you. Uh, I don't want to talk too much about the foot spots, but I thought I should just say a couple of words about the foot spa as um, someone who got to very, very, very luckily got to see Easy Riders and um, also got to have my um, feet cleaned in Easy Riders, uh, just, just for a moment. And I, I guess uh, I wanted to just say that, yes, you know, uh, there's so many layers to it, the absurdity. Um, for me, there was this sort of strange layer of, uh, you know, Christ washing the feet as well, but, or something. But I've never had my feet washed before, and it was just such a... Incredible! It was an incredibly visceral experience, and uh, it just felt like being connected very suddenly into this uh, transaction uh, and this relational experience with these performers and these these workers. Uh, this very strange experience of um, I was saying to Eugenia before about ex wondering, are my feet disgusting? Is there lint in my toes? Is there fungus? When did I last change my socks? All this stuff. I really just wanted to share that it was an extremely profound, and, and I've thought about it a lot since then, and it was really great to, to tap back into this conversation, and uh, thank you. That's all. Um, yeah, I, I, guess, I guess the question I have uh, is, um, I'm thinking a lot about how amazing participatory art and collaborative art is in bringing people together and giving people this sort of communal experience, and I, I don't want to be that critical person because I think that that's what's coming out of the artwork, is that people had a really um, fabulous, um, meaningful time in working on this project. And um, I, want, I guess I'm just wondering what comes now. Like, you're talking about having your voice heard through an artwork, but we might all dissipate and, um, 
move on to the next artwork because that's what the art world does. I guess I'm, I'm thinking about like theorists who are talking about the politics of listening and that where, do, where does this film go? How do we, um, not just you guys as artists because you've made this profound film which is and this um, great collaboration, but what do we do next in order to keep these stories being heard? And um, theorists of the politics of listening are saying that like it's not enough to just say to tell the stories, the stories need to be heard by the right people, right? So the people that are creating policy or changing workers' conditions or that kind of thing. And I'm not saying that Eugenia Lim or Aphids have to answer this question, obviously. But I think maybe it's a kind of, um, uh, it's a calling to all of us to, to think about these issues of labor and think about ways to collectivize more and change labor. So um, I don't know if that's a question, but um, just a thought that I... Okay, Catherine says it's not a question. Um, of course, Catherine does. But um, yeah, no, just uh, have you guys thought about this? Like, where would this film be seen? How do we amplify these voices? Obviously, you don't have to answer this question um, because it's a collective question, but yeah. I'll try in a small way, Amy, because it's a it's like a lifelong journey that we all need to be part of. But I think um, I think you know acknowledging that the artwork it isn't activism, like it is different to that. And while it has a kind of political intent, and there is a kind of social justice aspect to it, um, I don't kind of yeah kid myself that it's a revolution or that it's going to actually you know make Scott Morrison a nice person. <laughs> um, but I think that. Uh, it is in the relational aspect again, the fact that we're able to work with Trades Hall and um, actually connect with this union movement that is, yeah, it's quite different to the experience of the work it's done to artists as well. But I think even in that relationship, that's a lasting one. And I think the relationships that we've built um, are lasting as well. And I think that idea of actually creating a workspace that is um, maybe not utopian, but kind of wanting to create a better labour environment and a kind of fairer space is one that is meaningful. And, you know, I don't think I can go back to a, to a way before. And I hope that, um, you know, it's a work that creates conversations about that throughout the art world and also that this film, you know, given that we're not in a world where we can travel easily now, the film can travel internationally and kind of have these same kinds of conversations, um, you know, in very different contexts about what's fair and, and work. So, yeah, it's, I mean, there's so much work to be done, but hopefully there's there's kind of ripple effects. Um, but, um, I think, I think the awareness is important, I think, because there's so little understanding of this kind of work, because, as I said before, it's always, you know, far away from your mind, it's not an immediate sort of transaction, as you said, um, and I think if we're talking about it in the art world, as someone who exists in the intersections of both those worlds, I think we can use our power to bring more awareness to this, like, you know, even in the last couple of years, journalists have been reporting on on the ground about what's been happening to gig workers in so-called Australia and elsewhere as well, and there's a kind of groundswell that's happening, I think, due to all these different um, uh, endeavours, you know, whether by artists, but actors. 
universes, universe, etc. And I think if we were to actually meet on the same page, we might be able to affect some change. I think it's also about, um, like, I think this is a super interesting question about when you make work that's engaging with, like, a socio-political commentary or criticism or questioning, how close do you sit to activism in that practice and how much change do you expect to or, or want to create from a particular work or a series of works? And I think that one of the things that, you know, we've had that debate and I think it's an ongoing question or debate internally in AFITS. But what I'm hearing this afternoon or, and what we tried to embed was thinking about the shifting politics within the making of the work and sort of trying to create a model that presented another way, even if it is only temporary, which is a way that values different types of labour, makes different types of labour visible, and which also uh, remunerates in a fair way and listens. And it's um, this thing of like, how do you shift culture? How do you change and save the world? Like, uh, and how do we slowly do that as um, artists, culture makers, journalists, citizens together? It's such a heartbreakingly slow process. And so I think that these glimmers or these moments that you have together where you go, oh, they're actually in that room, there was some other way. Like that's why it feels so intoxicating because it's so rare. And also it's so unmapped, like in a contemporary sense, we were very aware that the 888 envisioning of Trades Hall, it doesn't work anymore, even, even for us. So we have to find a new way, we have to find a new way that works in this context. And it's completely mysterious and terrifying. And so you have to just laugh. And make sure everyone's fed. And that's a good start. Yeah, like any, you know, change history, it takes like all these different steps for anything to happen. So it's one small step at home. I just wanted to say, it was so great to hear Eugenia say that the work is utopian for you in some sense, especially in response to the question of you know, what comes next, uh, and, you know, there's a lot of dystopian art going around, I find, at this time, and it's so great to hear you say that. I wondered if, if you or anyone on the panel could speak to how you see this as a utopian project or body of work, generally. The world is so dystopian, like we were living, I felt like we were living dystopia through the whole process. It was two years of hell, basically, like trying to um, get this piece up, which, you know, was already ambitious and big to start with. But I think when you throw in a global pandemic and multiple shutdowns and, you know, it was already such a dark terrain, I think. Um, I think from that and the work that AFITS is doing and that I'm more interested in now is sort of not just work that reflects back the kind of um, just the complete ills of what's happening of reality maybe offering something kind of offering a different space where um, 
yeah, there is some sense of hope. There is some sense of, like, not being business as usual. So I think even though, you know, it was a really... Um, for us, it was a huge project in terms of budget, but completely lean compared to, like, a film project or compared to um, a sporting event, for example. But um, I think just being able to kind of offer that different mode of being and a different um, non-transactional kind of mode of being was really important. So I guess for me, it was like a, you know, yeah, that maybe that's utopian, but that's the kind of world that I want to see. Yeah, I think I already addressed it before where I was saying that, you know, it's all these little bits of change that add up to something later, um, which we're already seeing in some way or another. But um, I think I think over the pandemic, a lot of people realised that, you know, work sucks, you know, like any kind of labouring, whether it's, you know, artistic, whether it's, like, physical, emotional, etc., etc. And there's this, you know big movement now across the world of people just being really anti-work, like people are just being like, fuck it, you know, like, I wish I wasn't working so much, and you know, for example, say in China's the lying flat movement that I read about, that, you know, people are starting to oppose all these different um, uh, conditions that can be quite exploitative for workers regardless of whether you're an artist, whether you're an office worker, whether you're a, the economy worker. So that's utopian in that sense. Amazing. This has been such a huge and profound and generous conversation. And thank you so much for the really thoughtful questions from the audience. I think we're going to wrap it up, um, but stick around for a drink and a snack. And please join me in thanking Cher, Eugenia and Masai for their really thoughtful questions. <laughs> Uh, 22. So um, please join us again. Thank you. Thank you so much.